8: This is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
0: through, dear, since you said you were mine Oh, I don't want to approach a day made I see a rainbow before me Skies on the there won't be a storm here Until that moment of bliss. oh, that thrilling, thrilling kiss when it's heaven When you find romance on your menu Talking about a different today Got to be, got to be, got to be, got to be. Just, just gotta be you, what a difference! Da, 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 da. got
1: to
0: be got to be well i got to be <laughs> <laughs> that you say? Well, it's got to be you, you, you talking about you. You gotta be, got to be, got to be, yeah. Nobody, 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 nobody but you.
7: Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and um, my guest this hour is uh, the EMS coordinator at University of Connecticut John Dempsey Hospital. He's worked uh, for more than 25 years as a full-time ambulance paramedic. He is the author of Paramedic, On the Front Lines of Medicine, and Rescue 471, a paramedic's stories, and uh, he has a new book that uh, takes a devastating but empathetic look at the opioid epidemic in the United States through the eyes of a paramedic on the front lines. It's called Killing Season, a Paramedic's Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Opioid Epidemic by Peter Canning. Peter joins me by phone. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me on.
7: Um, Peter, how has... How has your impression of drug abuse and, and drug overdose changed over the 25 years that you've been responding
2: to calls? So um, when I started as a paramedic 25 years ago, I thought that people who use drugs had a character flaw. And I would say to them, uh, just say no, you're gonna, otherwise you're going to end up dead or in jail. But in time, as the number of overdoses increased, and as I began asking my patients on the, on the ride to the hospital after I'd revived them, why they wh- how they got into using drugs in the first place, my views started to change. Their stories all s- sort of had the same similarity. Uh, they didn't just wake up and decide, I'm going to try heroin. Um, they... We're in accidents. They are in a car accident. They, I broke my back. I fell off a ladder. I got hurt playing sports. Uh, I had cancer and I was put on pain meds. And there was this incredible similarity that they'd given high pain meds from their doctors and then they were cut off. They were in withdrawal. They'd had to buy pain pills on the, on the street to keep from feeling sick. And then before they knew it, uh, because those were so expensive, the same person who'd sell them the the street pills could sell them heroin, which is basically the same drug but so much more inexpensive. So I could see how all these people were were sort of caught in this horrible web, and they would look at me and say, I used to be a normal person once. And so once I started to hear those stories, and— and actually learn about addiction, which they never taught us in paramedic school, I began to understand that addiction was actually a medical disease and that these people did not deserve uh, our castigation, but that they deserved to be treated as as medical um, patients and treated with kindness and compassion. And so I wrote the book in the hopes that by bringing their stories to the public, that they would help change the public in the same way that they changed me.
7: I'm trying to think of. Uh, there's there's a drug now that's in use in reviving overdose patients, and the name of it uh, eludes me. But uh, N-
2: naloxone.
7: Yeah, uh, has that been the game changer that that people hoped it well, would be?
2: It yes, it's it's vital. I mean, it's absolutely essential. We actually, uh, when I started, only paramedics carried it. Um, and today, it's available if, if, actually, if your doctor gives you pain meds, he ought to also be giving you a prescription for naloxone. It's a life-saving drug. Um, anybody who's been addicted to drugs, even if they've been cleaned for a while, they should still have naloxone present. Um, it comes now, um, uh, rather than as a as shot, it comes as a, as a nasal spray. So it's very easy for a layperson, if they come upon an overdose, to just squirt it right in somebody's nose, and it, it, you know, we find a lot of times we get called for uh, an overdose, and by the time we get there, a layperson has already delivered naloxone, and the person is up and breathing.
7: So it really is is a, a game changer.
2: How yes, should, absolutely.
7: Um, has that, from your frontline experience in in Connecticut? Is that reducing the number of uh, DOAs?
2: Well, so it's certainly helping. Um, The problem right now, there's two reasons that the deaths are going up. COVID has increased people's isolation, so more people are using alone. If you use alone, if you use behind a locked door and you overdose and there's nobody there to, get you to recognize the overdose, to call 911 or give you naloxone, you may die. The second and the main reason is the synthetic opioid fentanyl, which a number of years ago has started to be added to the drug supply. It's so prevalent here in Hartford now that if you buy heroin, there's actually no heroin in the heroin you're buying. It's fentanyl um, combined with cut. You know, five, six years ago, if you bought heroin, you'd get a little bag for $4, the 50% heroin and 50% cut, which is like sugar or baking powder. Sure. Today, you buy the same $4 bag, it's 98% cut and just 2% fentanyl because fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. It only takes a small amount. And that's what the danger is. It makes it so much harder to mix and to get a regulated dose. Um, So if you buy a bag, it might have no fentanyl in it at all. It might be all sugar. It could have 1% or 2% fentanyl, which would be a regular dose, or it could have 10%, which could kill you. Because fentanyl tends to clump, you get what's called the chocolate chip cookie syndrome. So your bag might have that chocolate chip with fentanyl in it. So it makes it, it's a Russian roulette every time that someone uses. So if they use alone, even if they're an experienced user, fentanyl in their bag, they're going to die unless somebody can find them in time.
7: More about the opioid crisis from paramedic and author Peter Canning
8: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
7: More about the opioid crisis from paramedic and author Peter Canning, straight ahead. Do you have any sense for how fentanyl came onto the scene? Was there ever a legitimate use for it?
2: Yeah, so um, fentanyl, um, it's a synthetic opioid. Um it's a, we carry it as paramedics. It's a great drug when it's medicinal fentanyl, um, and it's properly, it's, you know, properly dosed. Um, it works much quicker than, than morphine does, and it doesn't last quite as long. So it's a, it's a great drug for us to give somebody who's got a broken leg or something. But the amount of fentanyl that we're giving is so much smaller than the amount of fentanyl that is put into the street drugs. The reason fentanyl has taken over the street drugs is because, being 50 to 100 percent stronger, it's 50 to 100 percent smaller in terms of smuggling. Um, It makes it so much more economical for drug dealers that it's pretty much taken over um, in the East Coast and, and. Areas of uh, the western part of uh, the United States where most of the heroin has been black tar heroin, fentanyl is now moving out there as well because it's just so much more economical for the drug dealers. But as, because of its potency, it is really really causing the increases in the deaths.
7: How are drug dealers getting their
2: their hands on fentanyl? Is it being so? Fent- fentanyl comes from two places. You can get it um from china in fact you know if i wanted to become a drug dealer myself i could go on the dark net and i could have fentanyl delivered to my house in a small envelope and i would have enough there to start quite a good business i wouldn't have to go you know to the dark side of town and knock on a door in an alley and you know go through several giant people to meet mr big in order to become a drug dealer the other way that it comes is it comes from mexico so Mexico gets a lot of their fentanyl from China and they do some of the mixing, uh, in Mexico. So rather than it being a hundred percent potent from the, the China, it comes, uh, smuggled into the United States, maybe as a 10% consistency. And then that is then recut once it gets in the United States. I know in the Hartford area, most of our fentanyl is coming from Mexico now.
7: And it, when you say it's, it's cut there, um, this is this is by drug cartels and and nefarious characters. Yeah, so it
2: it it goes at different levels, and the problem is because it's not done under you know U.S. pharmaceutical standards. There's no quality control, and you know once it gets you know to uh, to Connecticut, you know whether it's twenty percent, ten percent. The guy who, who gets it doesn't know what it is, and then he may cut it more or or whatever. But basically, if you have a, a prescription pill, you tend to know it's going to be the same thing you get every time. But with powdered fentanyl, you have no idea how strong it is. And again, if you're using alone, it's, it's Russian roulette.
7: Are there um, non-addictive... Drugs or, or alternatives to um, using opioids and synthetic opioids in, in pain management?
2: Yes. Um, we're seeing increasingly now um, that people are, are not being prescribed the opioids as much as they are. Um, in many cases, you know, Tylenol and ibuprofen do just as well um, for, for starters. Um, in the old days, I mean, five or six years ago, if you, you know, had surgery or broke your back, your doctor would give you a six month prescription, um, refill, you know, as needed, um, to very heavy duty opioids because the pharmaceutical companies were claiming that they really weren't very addicted, but that's proven to be a lie. So now they're trying to do as many non-opioid alternatives as possible. Or if you are given opioids, you're giving them a, a much smaller amount because addiction can take hold in, in just a matter of days uh, for some people.
7: Are all natural opioids a derivative of uh, uh, opium and and is that
2: uh, yeah? So so
7: by nature they're so addictive. They're, I mean, we know that before we even yes. open the bottle.
2: Right, right. It's and and what was was really terrible was is that you know, you can go on YouTube and you can watch some of these commercials that Purdue Pharma, Pharma put out where they claimed that these drugs really weren't very addictive at all. Um, and they knew they were addictive. And and the sad thing is is that all these people we have out there on the streets now who are you know, living in the homeless shelters or living out on the streets themselves, who once were you know members of our community, who, who fell prey to the prey to the to these drugs, are or, or the ones who are paying the price for the for the profits that the pharmaceutical companies made.
7: In your experience, um, Peter, what kind of what kind of damage are people suffering from? Uh, Overuse of and, and I don't mean just in terms of uh, uh, overdosing and, and death risk, but how is it impacting people's lives when opioids are overprescribed?
2: It's it's terrible impact because um, we there's a great stigma on people who use drugs, so um, people. You know, you go to the doctor, you you take the prescription, and then one day he tells you you can't use it anymore. But by now, your brain has already been rewired. You know, you're terribly sick if you don't use it, so you have to try to get it on your own, and you have to hide your addiction because people think it's a character flaw rather than a medical problem. So what happens is people, they lose their lives. They, They lose their families, their jobs. Um, and they they lose their self respect because they're treated as criminals. They're stigmatized and cast out rather than treated as people with a medical problem.
7: Isn't there a red flag when someone who has been using an opioid for pain management comes back to a doctor or another healthcare professional and says, "I need more"? Isn't that an automatic red flag? And and are healthcare professionals beginning to recognize that?
2: Well, sir, they're recognizing it. The problem is that they got addicted in the first place. And then, if the, they're recognized as being addicted, what happens is too many doctors, rather than trying to help them with their addiction, just cut them off completely. And then the person really has no choice but to go out on the street where they and eventually encounter fentanyl, which will kill them. So when I went to their paramedic school, they didn't tell, teach us anything about addiction. But I've come to learn about it and learn that it is actually a brain disease. So our brains are programmed to provide us with pleasure when we eat, when we have sex, and when we take care of our children because they're all key to our survival as a species. Opioids, overload our pleasure circuits and for some people they actually rewire the brain so that the brain is tricked into believing that opioids and heroin are the key to survival once those reward pathways are rewired it makes it very difficult to restore those circuits so to so to expect somebody with an opioid addiction that make rational decisions Is the same as expecting somebody with COPD to climb Mount Everest or somebody with a broken leg to run a 100-yard dash. You can put these people in an MRI and you can see the damage to their brains. They need our help rather than to simply be told to just say no and to to use willpower to stop using.
7: Well, why wouldn't doctors and healthcare professionals, um, when, you know, in the process of cutting somebody off, consider prescribing some sort of treatment for any residual addiction that might be there.
2: Well, the, the problem is, is that early on many doctors were never talking about, taught about addiction themselves. Ah. Um, so what's happening now is we're trying to educate people as much as possible, not only to how people become addicted, but to once they are addicted, how to, to, uh, to ease them off of that. Where before, if somebody came to me and you know was asking for an increased prescription, the doctor might say, well, you've been on this drug for six months. You broke your back six months ago. You don't need to be on it anymore. I think you're drug seeking. I don't want you as a patient anymore. So this guy is now being cast out into the black market as opposed to the doctor saying, oh my goodness, you know, I think you've become addicted we need to work carefully to taper you down and to monitor to you and to provide you with services to help you along um, so that's getting better i mean people are learning to do that but unfortunately much of the damage has already been done for so many people
7: the book is uh... called killing season of paramedics dispatches from the front lines of the opioid epidemic by peter canning my guest uh, Peter, what do you mean when you when you <laughs> use the reference a paramedic's dispatches?
2: Um, so I guess that's like uh, you know, as a, a news correspondent sends dispatches from the front lines. Oh, okay. Um, that's sort of what I what I believe I'm doing is is that you know from my. Uh, first-person view of, of being out there responding to people who are overdosing and talking with them and their families in the critical aftermaths, I'm trying to bring their voices and their stories to the public so they can see and feel what I've felt myself on a first-person first, pace, per, first person basis in the hopes that the voices of my patients will help change them in the same way me the understanding that we need to treat these people with compassion and kindness rather than with scorn
7: now you get called out on all kinds of things from automobile accidents and shootings to uh, unfortunately drug overdoses but do you have a sense for how many times when you head out on a call it's it's drug related
2: Um, there's an enormous number of drug related calls that are not directly a drug overdose. Um, once people are, you know, are consumed with drugs, they suffer many, many problems. Um, A lot of times we get called for people who are in drug withdrawal, who, you know, they've been using drugs, they're trying to stop. And from what I've been told, it's absolutely incredibly painful. Um, and awful. It's like the, the worst flu times 100 to, to go through opioid withdrawal. Um, people who use uh, opioids and drugs, they have um, endocarditis, is a disease that they often get from using dirty needles. Uh, many have abscesses. Um, many, through the lifestyle that they're living, uh, you know, are victims of assault and of and, and, uh, the elements. So the the, the drug usage impacts far more emergency calls than simply overdoses, um, but it's it's become just so prevalent. I mean, uh, but we do get, as you mentioned, we get all all different types of calls, but uh, the, the drug overdoses have been quite dominant in recent years.
7: And, and is that what led you to to write this book, because this is, this is more specific. This is about a particular kind of call that you get. It's, it's not like yeah, like your other books that were just you know, the stories right. from the front line.
2: Yeah, I just that because the the number that we were getting um, was increasing so rapidly, and then my understanding of them was was different. Um, and I just thought that it was something that would be really interesting to share with other people. And I, I really, I mean, I felt bad about the way I used to think about people who use drugs. So, you know, part of it is to try to make it up to them, is to try to, to share what I've learned, in hopes that uh, that other people will will come to see the same things that I have. Is
7: are there regulatory solutions and and um? policies that should be put in place that yes. that would help address this? What are what are some of the ways that we could maybe so, reverse this trend? So I think the trend? first
2: thing we have to recognize is that the war on drugs has failed and that the situation is worse today than it was when the war started. We have to switch from a criminal model to a public health model of addressing the problem. So first and foremost, treat addiction as a medical disease, treat users who are addicted as medical patients not criminals we have to fight against the stigmatization of people who use we should support harm reduction a harm reduction is stuff like needle exchange community naloxone safe injection sites it's taking steps to try to keep people alive until they're ready to get help um, and then we also need to do something about maybe decriminalizing drug use and finding some way to, to change the supply so it's not so tainted and poisoned with fentanyl, because that, uh, as long as fentanyl is out in the street in the manner that it is, uh, people are going to continue to die. Uh,
7: is there... Um i I've, I've read about some of these things that you're recommending, like needle exchanges and, and safe injection zones, and I, it seems to me that um, when I've come across those, they were in the Northwest. Do we have are there programs like that in the northeast
2: Yes so so in the United States, a true safe injection site is illegal. They have them in Canada. Um and they've been very successful. Now, in the city of Hartford, there is a place, it's a drop-in center that has a bathroom. Um, people can go into that bathroom and do whatever they want, um, but somebody is sitting outside that bathroom door, and after every three minutes, somebody knocks and says, are you okay? Now, well, some people might think that that's a crazy thing to, to have a place where people can go in and do drugs. What I've seen is people, they drive into Hartford, they're in withdrawal, they buy drugs, they need to use. What they do is they go into the restroom at McDonald's. They lock the door, they inject themselves, and if nobody needs to use that bathroom for 20 or 30 minutes, when they go to use it, they can't move the door open because there's a body blocking the back of the door. So we get called and by the time we get there, that person is already dead. Contrast that with the place down the street where there's somebody sitting outside the door knocking and saying, brother, are you okay?
7: Peter, how did you get started being a paramedic? Were you always uh, patient and and compassionate toward uh, the suffering of Um, others?
2: I I don't know. I think the job has certainly changed me and taught me to be more so. Um, Before I became a paramedic, I actually worked in politics. I worked for Senator Lowell Weicker in Washington and then in Connecticut when he was governor. And uh, I was a speechwriter and and worked in the health department. Um, When he got beat as United States Senator in 1988, I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I I thought that instead of helping people with words, I would try to help them with my hands. So I became an EMT and I fell in love with it. I went back to work with him when he became governor, and then the day when his term ended is when I started working as a paramedic. I've just found it incredibly fulfilling, and I've also been able to use the skills I learned in government to try to make a difference as far as uh, you know EMS and medical care, and uh, and now with the opioid epidemic.
7: Are the lines of communication open enough to frontline workers that, that see the worst of the problems?
2: Um, I, you know, I think the average frontline worker um, may not always know how to access government. Um, I've been very lucky in that I, I know some of that ways. And I know here in Hartford in Connecticut, uh, Senator Blumenthal, the Senator from Connecticut has been very good about reaching out to frontline workers. And so I have, I've spoken with him on a number of occasions and been at forums and I've seen it as my voices of the people of the front lines and the voices of the patients to the halls of power. And, uh, I, I do know that people in the halls of power like to hear those voices. Um, from the people who are really there on the scenes. Is this your third book? This is my third nonfiction book. Okay, I've also written two uh, novels about uh, paramedics. And in the
7: um, and I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask is when did or does Killing Season uh, drop, as they say.
2: Oh, so it was published on April 6th, so it's been out for a week or so. It's available uh, at all uh, brick-and-mortar and online booksellers.
7: What kind of reviews are you getting?
2: Well, very good. Uh, Amazon just named uh, Killing Season as one of the top ten best new nonfiction books of, of the month. So I was excited about that.
7: Um. Peter, what's what's next? Have you got uh, have you got the writing bug uh, now? Are you um, going to do another book?
2: I I don't you know I don't know. I always when I go to work I bring a little laptop with me, and I always write about things that happened in hopes of trying to make sense of them. I don't have a particular project in mind right now, but I'm sure at some point. Uh, um, something will come up, uh, you know, maybe a novel uh, or maybe another nonfiction book. Also, I'm getting a little old now. I'm 62, so at some point, I might try to write a uh, sort of what what my my life as a paramedic has has been like. Um, but we'll just have to see. Well, Peter, I appreciate
7: you spending this time with me and uh, and, and sharing your expertise and your experiences, uh, both with our listeners this morning and also with, uh, with your books. Um, I always give guests, we're, we're just about out of time, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Um, do you have a website where people can find out maybe a yes, little bit more about you and your work, past,
2: present, my, and future? My website is, yeah, my website is petercanning.org. Um, you can go there, and there's links to my blog and uh, my Twitter and, um, account. My Twitter is called MedicScribe, MedicScribe. Um, but if you go to the website, you'll be able to see it. Um, but I, I thank you so much for having me on. And uh I thank your your listeners. I just want to reiterate that, you know, in my years of dealing with this, you know, the one thing I've learned is that we're all people and we should be kind to each other, and that any one of us is only a step away from misfortune.
7: Great final thoughts, Peter. Thank you so much. Take care. Keep up the good work.
2: Thank you, Tom. You too. Have a great day. All right.
7: That was uh, Peter Canning. He is, um, let's let's see if we can get all his... uh, credentials in before we uh, before we run out of time. He's the uh, coordinator of emergency medical services at University of Connecticut John Dempsey Hospital. He has worked for more than 25 years as a full-time ambulance paramedic and he's the author of Paramedic on the Front Lines of Medicine and Rescue 471 A Paramedic Stories. His new book that we were talking about today, Killing Season, a paramedic's dispatches from the front lines of the opioid Epidemic. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
1: Old Radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program.
2: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on The Tom Sumner Program.
5: No, it's my first the time. First time on. Yeah. Well, let me explain to you what we're going to do. Right. Here. First of all, we work this show with three cameras. Three cameras? Yes, we have three cameras. We have one in the center over here. Uh-huh. We have one on the side. Oh, yeah. And one over here on this side. Oh, yeah. Now, all three of these cameras are immobile. They're where? They're fixed. I didn't know that. Yes, they're stationary cameras. Oh, oh, oh! They don't move. You said fixed, doesn't it? Well, they're fixed in place. I uh, had my cat fixed. We can go there. Oh, no, no,
1: no. It's, it's not the same thing at
5: all. Oh, so, terrible, Tom! We used to call so, uh, what's important is... Oh, he was the terror of the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Well, when, yeah. we had to have him fixed. Yeah, but I want you to pay attention He to just me. sits in the bread box and stares at me I now. Mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it's very important. We call him Sam Spade. All right. Just forget about your cancer. I have to explain to you what we're going to do. Well, the important thing is just look at the camera where you see the red light. First of all, we'd like you to uh, tell us something about yourself. We know that you are a doctor. Yes, a DM. An MD. 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 (laughs) Doctor, in uh, in medicine today, it seems to me that most men are specializing. Well, what's happened an awful lot today in medicine is that we have found that uh, in medicine that many of the people, particularly the doctors, are specializing. Yes, well, I'm certainly glad you cleared that up for me. Uh, and we were uh, talking about that, old last Thursday, not the doctor place. The hospital. The hospital. The, the hospital,
1: hospital. And,
5: uh, and how about you, doctor? What's yours? Uh, bourbon, if you have no, it. No, Well, doctor, I, I mean, in uh, in what field do you operate, sir? Well, we don't operate in the field. We have a new building. No. Building. some of the older ladies complain of grass stains.
1: Uh, that's part of the well, are you an
5: obstetrics? No, we're down next to the elevator. no. I, I mean, you do have a specialty. Someone comes to see you, your name's on the door there. Oh, yes. And uh, it says yes. your specialty. Right, I'm a surgeon. Surgeon. C E R G O N. <laughs> You're a general surgeon? Yes, I do. You, uh, you do general surgery? Yes, I am. Well, Which I was correct, of course, we realize you don't operate alone. No, we like to have a patient there. Uh, <laughs> you can go cutting right through the woods otherwise. Uh, doctor, I, I mean that you, you do have a crew to assist you. Oh, fine. see, be. I'm asking you these questions because I would imagine there must be thousands of young men around the country. Well, there must be. I can't get on a golf course. <laughs> yes, I
1: know. <laughs> but I, I meant
5: watching our program tonight. And I'll bet you a lot of these young fellas are interested in medicine. Well, I hope so, uh, because we've got a lot of it we're trying to sell. No, no, uh, no. They don't want to buy any medicine. We're overstocked in Oreo Mass. No, doctor. I mean, some of these young fellas watching the show tonight might have an interest in a medical career. Oh, hallelujah. Well, we certainly need them. Well, we need them down to the doctor oh, place. It's, it's not the not hospital. The I think these young fellows should realize you just don't get to be a doctor. No, sir. You've got the studies. Study. Study. <laughs> Long hard bear to train. certainly are. You have to study everything. Study is as study does. Isn't that the you truth? You must read lots of pamphlets and oh, yes. hang around the drugstore. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, pharmaceuticals is a great study. It certainly can. Yeah, yeah. Doctor, you were very high in your class. No, I get high on weekends. No, 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 <laughs> doctor. You graduated magna cum laude. Magna Cum That's right, yes, right there. Number one in the class of over 400. 412, yes, sir. I was class president and uh, captain of the lacrosse team. Is that so? And I was also the uh, valedictorian. Valedictorian. That's oh, the Valedictorian of your class. <laughs> in your valedictory <laughs> address, doctor, you included a Motto. I certainly will. Now, I haven't heard this motto, but I understand this is the thought that you claim is responsible for having put you in this eminent position you now uh, enjoy in the medical world. Medical world is as medical world does. Well, that isn't the motto. No, oh, no, no, no. Well, I wonder if we could prevail upon you, doctor, to pass your motto on to our television audience at this time. You know it might help some of these young fellows who would like to follow in your footsteps. I'd be more than coy. Oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. I knew you were talking to him. Thank you. The motto that has helped me through life and through school, and it goes, how many times... Have we jumped over and said to ourselves, let's go back. These are the new things, and throw out, and we go back and say, How many, and that's not enough. We must feel in our hearts that the highway of life is paved, and we must walk the white line of light, and know that each of us that has ever and gone back has known that the new, don't touch me, the newness, we can feel that as you lift it, lift it as you. Know not why, but why know not? These are the things that we worry. All of us, gather a whole big bunch of it and throw it against the wall sometimes. (laughs) Everybody. (laughs) Doctor, I want to thank you for taking some of your valuable time and spending it here with us tonight. Well, I feel that if I can bring, uh, and, and whether or not. Yes, well, I'm still working on throwing it against the wall, so we'll work on that. But I, I did want to ask you one question before you left, Doctor. Uh, you're familiar with this great problem that's uh, uh, just covering the whole world the population exposure. Oh, big problem. Big, big problem. problem. Oh. And, and I, I don't have the figures oh. readily at hand, but I understand that somewhere in the world there's a woman having a baby every couple of seconds. Yes, that's the problem. We've got to find her and stop her. Oh. All right, Doctor. <laughs>